I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. As you know, our sermons this summer have taken us on a journey from the mountains to the seashore. Today, the video you just saw showed us the famous angel tree near Charleston, one of the oldest trees in America. That tree reminds us of another tree, probably an olive tree that was cut down some 2,000 years ago and made into a cross. And on that cross, our Savior, Jesus Christ, died for us. Today, we come to the climax of our summer journey as we lift up Jesus and light up the cross. Our scripture lesson for the morning comes from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. The sun, S-O-N, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. One of the most renowned and powerful Methodist preachers of the last 100 years was a country boy from Tennessee named Clovis Chapel. Clovis had a nephew too, Wallace Chapel who also was a powerful preacher and one of the most effective evangelists I have ever known. Some years ago, Wallace and Clovis were conducting jointly a series of services in Little Rock, Arkansas. And after one of the services, a lady came up to Clovis Chapel and said, Oh, Dr. Chapel, there will be so many stars in your crown when you get to heaven. Well, Clovis thanked her in a polite way, and then she left. And then he turned to Wallace and said, I'm not in this business for stars. 
I'm in it for Jesus. That was just the attitude of St. Paul. St. Paul had one magnificent obsession and dominant purpose, and that was to lift up Jesus and light up the cross. To the church in Philippi, he wrote this, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And looking back on his ministry in the city of Corinth, he wrote this, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For St. Paul, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection were just flip sides of the same coin, the most precious currency that God ever lavished upon this world. In all of our worship services here, our aim is to lift up Jesus and light up the cross. Jesus, referring to himself, said this, the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Never has that been more essential than today in America. Because today, in this beloved country, the Bible's traditional teaching about Jesus Christ is under attack, even in the mainline churches of America. But folks, that's nothing new. Way back in the first century, St. Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians because some false teachers called Gnostics were attacking Christianity and the gospel. These Gnostics were intellectuals, very, very smart people, who disliked what they called the crude simplicity of Christianity. They wanted Christianity, the gospel, to be more of a philosophy that they could commingle with the other philosophies of the world and produce sort of a Heinz 57 brand of religion. There is a similar heresy at work in America today. It is really a counterfeit religion that is being spread across our land. I refer to it as secularism. A secularist looks at life from a secular point of view rather than a biblical point of view. A secularist does not believe that the Bible, all of it, is the inspired Word of God. A secularist does not believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. And most secularists believe that Satan does not exist. It's all a myth. And the scary thing is that it's estimated that 40% of Americans are secularists. Now, we United Methodists pride ourselves on being a diverse people. That is, in matters that do not strike at the root, the heart of our faith, we tolerate a, a wide variety of beliefs. We don't kick out our liberals and we don't kick out our conservatives. But there must be certain core truths, central affirmations, essential matters in which we must be together. That's the core of Christianity. And the most important single belief is about Jesus Christ, that he is God's son, that he died on a cross for our sins, and he physically arose from the grave. Some 20 years ago, 
I traveled by bus with about 40 or 50 other men to Dallas, Texas from Memphis for a promise keepers rally. Great big football stadium, 42,000 men were there. And the highlight of that rally for me was when a speaker said, at the count of three, I want to invite all of you men to shout out the name of your hometown. At the count of three, they did, and oh, it was just bedlam. Just a bunch of noise. And then he said, now at the count of three, I want you to shout out the name of your religious denomination. That's what they did. Again, just a bunch of noise. And then he said, now at the count of three, I want you to shout out the name of your Savior and Lord. And I'll never forget the tumultuous, harmonious roar that 42,000 men made when they shouted together, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Friends, America needs that kind of unity today. How we need it. Because today in America, Satan is working overtime to keep us divided and angry. And many of our urban areas, as you know, are overrun by criminals while our police are undermined and underfunded. The use of illegal drugs is escalating and our fluid borders provide an abundant source of that lethal poison. Races and classes are alienated from each other. Charges of racism are just thrown around carelessly. Indeed, there are some groups in America today who want to reverse the great progress of the civil rights revolution. Yes, they want to resegregate us according to race. And indeed, there are some who want to change the teaching of Dr. Martin Luther King to teach our school children to evaluate each other on skin color instead of the content of their character. In the midst of all that chaos that's going on in America today, the only one who can bring unity and healing is the Lord Jesus Christ. In response to the Gnostics of the first century and the secularists of the 21st century, we have in our scripture lesson for today the highest and most comprehensive description of Jesus Christ you can find in the entire Bible. In these five verses... St. Paul makes four glorious affirmations about Jesus. Four affirmations that no other religion in history has dared to make about their founder. The first one is this. In Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of God. In Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of God. In verse 15, we read, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And then down in verse 19, we read, For God was pleased to have all his fullness to dwell in him. Jesus Christ is all of God we are capable of knowing. And if you ask me, what is God like? I'll just point you straight to Jesus. Now, most people admire some version of Jesus often is way too little and certainly not true to scripture. 
But most people admire something about Jesus. There are some people who regard Jesus as just a brilliant teacher. And of course he was. There are some who regard Jesus as just a compassionate, charismatic leader. And he was. But he was so much more. I'm reminded of a charming elderly lady born and reared in the South who was trying to convince her nieces and nephews that Southerners were the best people in the world. And one of her nieces asked her, Aunt Sue, do you mean that everything good and beautiful comes from the South? And she said, well, almost everything. And one of her nephews then asked her, Aunt Sue, do you think that Jesus was a Southerner? She said, he was good enough to be. <laughs> but you see, the Bible won't let us be content with saying Jesus is just a morally superior person or even an inspired prophet. The Bible won't let us get by with that. The great English theologian, C.S. Lewis, uh, reminded us that we do not have that option. If we read the Bible honestly, you have to conclude that Jesus was either who he said he was, the Son of God, or a madman, or even worse. When Jesus' disciples asked to see God the Father, Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, folks, it takes some, a lot of audacity for us to claim that God Almighty has visited planet Earth in the form of a man named Jesus. And it takes a lot of audacity for us to claim that believing in this Jesus is the only way to be saved. Then, in God's name, let's be audacious because the Bible declares it and our own experience confirms it. In Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of God. That's the first declaration of St. Paul. Here comes the second one concerning Jesus. Jesus Christ is the cement that holds the universe together. Notice verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now this means that the Christ Spirit, the eternal Christ Spirit, not only helped create the universe, but also causes the systems of our universe to hang together. In other words, the laws of physics are reliable because of the Christ spirit. Every chemical formula, even H2O, depends on the Christ spirit. Just imagine if even for 10 minutes, the law of gravity was suspended and everything is just floating around. I can think of only thing, one thing worse. If the Christ spirit were suspended for even 10 minutes, not only would the law of gravity be suspended, but all the other dependable laws of the universe would go haywire. Furthermore, the forces of evil would run wild. Because of the living Christ spirit, we live in a world of dependable laws. The sun comes up every morning. The rain falls from the sky. Seeds germinate. 
and planet Earth does not collide with other planets. Each night brings darkness and the blessing of sleep. All of that depends on the Christ Spirit, who is the cement in this universe. That brings us to the third affirmation in our text about Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. In verse 18, we read, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. And repeatedly, Jesus is called in the Bible the cornerstone of the church. St. Paul refers to him as the chief cornerstone of the church. As you know, today most American churches are going through hard times. Most of you know that our United Methodist denomination is going through a most difficult period. Now you don't sense it here at Mount Horeb because this is a Bible-believing, vibrant, growing church. But the United Methodist Church across the United States is anything but united. Some Methodists believe that our future depends on the Council of Bishops. Other Methodists believe that our future depends on the General Conference of the United Methodist Church. Neither opinion is correct. The future of Methodism and every other church will be determined by the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus did not say, you will build your church. He did not say, you will help me build my church. No, Jesus said, I will build my church. Therefore, it's vital that we pray every day for Jesus Christ to shape the Methodist movement. My daily prayer sounds something like this. Give us a revived Methodist movement that is faithful to Holy Scripture and will obey your command to go and make disciples of all nations. Please add your prayers to mine as we face these crucial months together. And that brings us to the fourth and climactic declaration about Jesus in our text for today. Real peace comes through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. The latter part of verse 20 points to the atoning sacrifice made by Jesus for all of us, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Why would a, a holy God leave the glories of heaven to take up residence on this sin-marred, tear-stained world filled with sinners like you and me? Why? Jesus gave us the answer. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You and I and all other people were trapped by sin, separated from a holy and righteous God. And no one but God himself was great enough and pure enough and loving enough to pay the penalty for all of our sin and to bridge the gap between us and a holy God. Jesus took the ravages of our sin upon himself and in exchange clothed us with his righteousness. St. Paul described that magnificent transaction this way. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a transaction. Every one of us can claim the salvation that Jesus paid for on the cross. It's so simple. All a person has to do is sincerely repent. Just tell the Lord, I'm a sinner and I can't fix it. But I believe what you did on the cross offers a way for my forgiveness. And I'm so grateful. I invite you to be the Lord of my life. That, that's it. So simple. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest love story ever told in all of history. And even now, every now and then, you see reflections of that love story. For example, a couple of months ago, the news reported from Cheyenne, Wyoming, a vicious dog was about to attack a little girl. And at the last moment, her six-year-old brother, Bridger Walker, stepped between the dog and the little girl. He was savagely attacked by the dog, biting him up in the facial area. It required several surgeries and 90 stitches to repair the damage. And later on, somebody asked him, Bridger, what caused you to step between that dog and your little sister? And his answer clearly showed that he expected the worst. He said, if somebody had to die, I thought it ought to be me. Jesus decided that he should die rather than allow you and me to be separated from all eternity from a holy and righteous God. Now, I wish I could explain to you neatly, rationally, how the death of that one God-man broke the back of sin and opened all the doors to our abundant and eternal life. I wish I could, but I can't because you see, the mystery of the cross is bigger than our minds can fully comprehend. But that's okay because you don't have to get your mind around it. All you have to do is get your heart around it. This much I know. Jesus died for me. My name is written on that cross. God's love claimed me, saved me, and is transforming me. And he wants to do the same for you. Years ago, years before, just a few years before Billy Graham died, some reporter asked him, Dr. Graham, how over the past 40 years has your preaching changed? And Billy Graham said, now I preach more on the cross and the blood because that's where the power is. We Methodists have a special place in the mountains of Western North Carolina called Lake Junaluska. And there's so many attractive things about Junaluska. Uh, the shimmering, tranquil lake, the towering, misty blue mountains surrounding it, and the air, oh, the air. To breathe that mountain air is to caress the lungs. But the major attraction at Lake Junaluska is the lighted cross high up on a hill above the lake. Almost 100 years ago, back during the Great Depression, 
when money was in short supply and Lake Junaluska was trying to save money any way they could, they decided as a way to save some money to turn off the lights on that cross at night. But right away, a protest came in from the railroad employees who rode that train through that area every night. And they rode into the authorities and they said, please turn the lights back on the cross. Because every night it gives us hope during this troubled time for our nation. And along with their letter, they sent a contribution. And before long, the lights on the cross were turned on. And by the way, recently during COVID-19, the residents at Lake Junaluska petitioned the authorities to turn the lights on the cross, not only on at night, but all during the day. And so today, the lights on the cross are turned on 24-7. The message of the Junaluska cross has meaning for America today. Our beloved country is in trouble. America's salvation cannot be provided by the president or the Congress. America's salvation cannot be forced by the police or the army. America's salvation cannot be purchased by trillions of dollars in government funding. America's salvation can only come from God through Jesus Christ and we must assist the Lord Jesus, because we are the church, which is his body. We must be willing to say to anybody, Jesus Christ died for me, and he loves you as much as he loves me. If we want to bring peace to America and unity, if we want to bring vitality back to the churches of America, if we want to see sinners saved, we must lift up Jesus and light up the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. <clears throat> now, now it's time, now it's time for our closing hymn, and I feel led to invite you to this altar. This altar is holy ground, and I invite you to come down here during the singing of this hymn, and kneel or stand for just a few moments and say this to God. I am so grateful that your son died for me that it will be the central purpose of my life to lift up Jesus and light up the cross. Come down here whether it's your first time or 10th time to make a commitment to the Lord Jesus. And if you're watching online, create an altar where you are. Again, I invite you to come and stay, say this to God. I am so grateful that your son died for me, that the central purpose of my life will be to lift up Jesus and to light up the cross. <laughs>